rises. They say, you can have your God in your closet. But when we, we talk about God being sovereign, when we talk about God being creator, when we talk about God being active in our historical faith, that's when there is objection and an attempt to try to discredit uh, the reliability of Scripture and, more importantly, the character of God is slandered. So, at first glance, this story about Herod and John the Baptizer may seem out of place. It may seem parenthetical to the development of Mark's account of the public ministry of Jesus. But I want us to take a closer look at it because I think it fits the theme of the chapter very well. As we've come to chapter 6, what is the theme? The gospel conflict in the sinful world is against unbelief, against disbelief, against false beliefs, and weak belief. But the saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the victory that overcomes the world. That's why we're saying that we are to always be defending and preaching and, and upholding the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter whether it was in the days of John the Baptizer or whether it's today. Because we are confronted and we are combating unbelief in the world. And this unbelief takes on different uh, uh, kinds of expressions and disbelief or in false beliefs as we'll see this morning and then next week as we'll go on to see weak belief but it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the victory that overcomes the world now the elements of the story of King Herod and the martyrdom of John the baptizer is historical reality this is not an embellished story this is a record of what actually happened I believe it I take it as God's truth it's recorded for us uh, even though we don't really know what happened to Herod, uh, as we do with some of the others named Herod and some within that dynasty and within that legacy, uh, we don't know specific, specifically what happened to uh, Antipas uh, in terms of, of the end of his life. But this story and the elements that we have here of his dealing with John the Baptizer is an historical reality. It really happened, but it also recognizes, I think, themes of human experience that are well known. For example, we have in this story lustful ambition for power and for possessions. Herod wanted to be the king. He wanted to take over all of his father's possessions. He wasn't given that. So he schemed and he lobbied and he continued to try to do so. Uh, this uh, encounter with John the baptizer and his preoccupation and interest in Jesus and the stories that he heard about Jesus, those may not seem of any account to the world, but they do tell us something about Herod and his accountability to God. His lustful ambition for power and possessions. He thought he was autonomous. He thought he was a, a law unto himself. That he was above the law. And he thought he was above God. Because he was complicit in adultery in taking his half-brother's wife. Power of guilt and attempting self-covering. Uh, this is what brought uh, Herod and John the baptizer into collision. Because uh, John was a faithful prophet of God. And he witnessed to the law of God. And Herod was guilty for his sin, and he attempted his self-covering, as many do. He was plotting and framing, and of course his wife will, will learn, his, his uh, adulterous uh, wife, uh, Herodias, she also was plotting and trying to frame others. And this blame even led them to the killing of people. Again, this is something that we, we see commonly in human experience. But there's a revealing of truth and the voice of conscience as facts and witnesses and prophets and even superstitions evoking the supernatural will not leave people's conscience alone. 
They may not show it on the outside, but in the recesses of their soul, God's voice of conscience continues to witness to their guilt. Now, oftentimes we find public exposure to be the great reversal. It doesn't always happen. But we do know that what will happen is the great day of the Lord is previewed. When there are these public reversals uh, and the mighty are fallen and it comes to witness, we have here in the record of Scripture what Herod and Herodas did and even the complicity of Herodas' daughter in blood guiltiness. This is a record that rises above the dustbin of history and continues to tell us that God holds people accountable. And so there is public exposure. It may not be always in the way that that we would like in terms of this is not the world of final justice. But you can be sure that God's justice was served. We don't know what happened to Herod and Herodas and their daughter. They were guilty of the blood of John and probably of others. Could they have been redeemed? Could Herod? Because he says he liked to hear what John had to say. And that he even was interested in who Jesus was. professed to be. Is it possible that Herod could have turned from his sin and been redeemed? We don't know. I I don't hold that out as uh, unreal. I would say that would be a praise to God if like wicked King Nebuchadnezzar before him came to faith in, in God. I don't know. But you can be sure he did not escape God. No one will. So this basic storyline has been and continues to be repeated in a variety of expressions of conscience and culture, through stories and poems, through songs, through plays and films and TV series, you see this same theme played out over and over because there is a predictability to sinful thoughts and behavior. We, we say, no, history doesn't repeat itself. Sinful humans make the same mistakes over and over. <laughs> you know, one of the best known and celebrated along this line is Shakespeare's The Tragedy of Hamlet, The Prince of Denmark. These very elements that I've just went over and mentioned to you, you can find them in that famous uh, play. But more importantly, the original source of these theme elements is, of course, the biblical story of original sin, the fall of Adam and Eve, as well as numerous renditions throughout the epics of the Old Testament. You're probably familiar. These were just some off the top of my head. You can probably think about this in terms of these elements that are here. How about Pharaoh and the exodus from Egypt? Uh, Pharaoh was lustful for power. Uh, Pharaoh claimed to be a god. He thought he was a law unto himself. But there was the witness of the power of guilt. And uh, as he plotted and, and tried to hold and keep the Hebrew children there, God uh, had other plans. And even though he was going to destroy them and kill them, God revealed the truth through the prophet Moses and and Aaron. And, of course, there was the supernatural, even though the uh, Egyptians were full of religious superstitions. It's a really interesting study to compare the ten plagues of Egypt against the false superstitions and idols of the false religion of the the, uh, Egyptians. And then, of course, there was the public exposure and the great reversal, particularly when Pharaoh and his army were drowned in the Red Sea. I take that as historically accurate. I believe it. I don't care whether we have evidence of it or not. I, I know some have said they found evidence of chariots uh, in the, the uh, uh, bottom of the Red Sea. So I'm glad for that, but that's not what convinces me. I believe it because it's in Scripture. And I believe that indeed happened. 
And so we have these stories. Uh, think about Samson and the elements that I mentioned here are, are uh, revealed in the story of Samson. Also in the story of King Saul's treachery and his consorting with a witch. How about King David's adultery? And, and I'm not even sure that Bathsheba is to blame there. I, uh, there's some interesting concern about that. You know, Was she complicit in that adultery or was she simply uh, forced by the king? I, I, I'm not sure. But nonetheless, David was adulterous. And he was also a betrayer, and he plotted the murder of a faithful man, Uriah. Do you remember Belshazzar's feast, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar? Remember how these elements play out in that story as well? Even the hand writing on the wall, a, a, a hand appeared as a, of a man that wrote the message, you're weighed in the balances and found wanting. So these elements again appearing and demonstrating to us uh, one of the, the wonderful and challenging stories is Queen Esther. Remember how God used and set Queen Esther in the Persian palace and used her? And there was an evil Haman who was going to plot the genocide and the destruction of the Jewish people there, and he ended up being hanged on his own gallows. So these stories tell us about these elements working their way out, not because history is cyclical, but because Sinful humans make the same mistakes over and over. And there is a predictability to the thoughts and the behavior of sinful people. But God is active and God is involved in the world of His creation. That's why we talk about it being an historical faith. God is active in the world. God is active with us today. He is here. He's in our midst. He is directing us. He's involved. His providence guides us. And these stories bolster and assure us of our faith. Now the story of King Herod and the martyrdom of John the baptizer here in the context of Mark 6 highlights false beliefs continuing the development on the theme of unbelief expressed by common objections. We saw when Jesus visited his hometown and people just brushed it off as common and they objected. And then also of disbelief when Jesus sent out his apostles uh, uh, as, with the witness of the gospel, empowering them and directing them and commissioning them, they went out and he told them they were going to in, have a, a message of repentance, conversion, and judgment, and that they would meet with disbelief. So again, we continue to witness the gospel in the midst of common objections, old, worn out rejections, people dredging up the same old things over and over, common objections to reject the claims of Jesus and the gospel. And we maintain that message of repentance and conversion and judgment. And there are people who continue in disbelief. I don't believe it's like that. I don't believe God is like that. Why don't you believe that? Because I don't want to. That doesn't make it so. Because God has revealed himself to us in Scripture. It's not something he's hidden. So we come this morning to verses 14 through 29, as we already mentioned. And here we encounter false beliefs. False beliefs demonstrated by religious superstitions and unbiblical interpretive traditions. We'll see these religious superstitions of Herod and the unbiblical uh, interpretations that are forced from their traditions on Scripture. That's still going on today. And You may say, well, what about religious superstitions? There are all kinds of superstitions in the world. And there's all kinds of superstitions with, with uh, non-Christian religions. But what about false superstitions that are within Christianity. I thought of a, of, of a really uh, bizarre example. But I don't think it's far from the truth. Somebody who buys a lottery ticket 
and puts it in their Bible on the passage of asking God for answered prayer. That's a superstition. That's a false superstition. Now, some of us use the symbol of the cross. Maybe you've got a a necklace with a cross on it or a ring or something that has the Christian symbol of the cross. I I don't have any problem with the Christian symbol of the cross. We have one on the steeple outside. You know what I have a problem with? When you turn it into a good luck charm. When you say, oh, I'm going to wear my cross today in hopes that I'll get this job. You see, that's idolatry. That's false. That's a false superstition. When people try to turn objects or things into some kind of power, Do you have some clothes that you wear because you think they'll give you good fortune? That's a superstition. Now I know that a lot of sports heroes have these superstitions they go through. They they eat the same meal or they wear the same pair of socks. There is no power in these things. If you do that in terms of thinking that you will have favor with God, that is a superstition. It's not what goes into your mouth. It's not the food you eat. Jesus said that. Why don't we listen to what Jesus said? There are people today who think that with one of the fads in terms of diet, you you may have a a healthier life. I'm all for that. Look, if you've got sugar problems, you need to change your diet. Okay? Not because that makes you holier, it makes you healthier. Okay? Jesus said it's not what goes into your mouth and is digested. That's not what corrupts you. It's what comes out of the heart. So there are still religious superstitions that even Christian people fall into. And you need to be ashamed of that. And you need to repent from it. And there are unbiblical interpretive traditions. We try to force systems on Scripture. And we oftentimes misunderstand the sovereignty of God. People turn it into a cause and effect fatalism. I can't tell you how many times people take Scripture out of context and they say, I'm claiming this verse of Scripture completely out of context for their own selfish want. You know what James said about that? You ask and have not because you ask amiss that you might consume it upon your lust. You're not asking God faithfully. You're asking God selfishly. And so there are these false interpretive traditions that we think we can play loose with the Word of God and turn it to our own benefit because of something we want. Or how we want things to be. Faith is not fatalism. And we need to understand and appreciate the scriptures. Not as some kind of moralistic rights and wrongs. Can we uh, look at the scriptures and say. Oh God I did this for you today. And I, I check off four things that I did. Oh but then I got mad when I was driving home. And that's one thing. But I did four good things and only one bad thing. So you know I should be good with God. That's false. It's a false interpretive tradition. Trying to twist the word of God. So, here we face this in Herod's accountability to God and his dealing with John the baptizer. If you look at verses 14 and 15, which we we read a little bit ago, now King Herod heard of Jesus, for his name had become well known, and he said, John the baptizer, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah, and others said, it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. So, Unlike the self-conscious blasphemy of the Jewish religious leaders back in chapter 3 that said Jesus was from the devil, here we have those who have some scriptural knowledge and they recognize Jesus' prophetic presence. Herod says that this is John the baptizer who's come back from the dead to haunt me because he had a guilty conscience. He was conscience-stricken. He was conscience-bound by religious superstitions probably because he was entangled with guilt. 
And so what does he say? Rather than Jesus acknowledging he is the Messiah, he's the one that John said is the coming one, the Messiah, he says, oh, John the Baptist has come back from the dead. There's no warrant in Scripture anywhere for that kind of thing. And then others suggested that Jesus was a reincarnation of Elijah or the prophet, meaning the prophet Moses, by pressing an unbiblical interpretive tradition of forced literalism. At the end of Malachi, God gave the word that he would send Elijah, that great prophet of the Lord, before the great and terrible day of the Lord's return. And Jesus identified John the baptizer as Elijah, not a reincarnation of Elijah, but one fulfilling the role of Elijah. You remember that Elijah and Moses met with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, representing the law and the prophets. Moses was the prophet that God gave the law. But Jesus is greater than them all. He is prophet, priest, and king. And so they pressed this interpretation that that, uh, Elijah has to come back reincarnated. There's nothing in Scripture about that. That flies in the face of everything Scripture says. There is no such thing. And then there are those who expressed a contradiction of false beliefs. They used a caveat. They wanted to play loose, you know, because they were such literalists. You know anybody like that? They say, oh, he's like one of the prophets, while they rejected him as an imposter. You, you know the old adage, don't you? Looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, walks like a duck, lays eggs like a duck. It must be a muskrat. That's what they were saying. Oh, looks like a prophet, talks like a prophet, powers of God are are demonstrated as a prophet. He claims to be the prophet of God, the Messiah, the, the, the final prophet. He must be an imposter. You see? False beliefs. So religious superstitions and unbiblical interpretive traditions continue to preoccupy people, obscuring the gospel of Jesus Christ. But please understand this. God the Holy Spirit will not sanctify error. If I get up here and preach to you that Jesus is a good man who showed us a good way of life, that is a half-truth, and God will not sanctify that. If I tell you that Jesus was a good man who was a sinless man who died in your place for sin's guilt, and God raised him from the dead, and he ascended to heaven, and he is the only Savior and mediator between God and men, you can believe that. And so we've got to be careful not to obscure the gospel, being preoccupied with all these other foolish things, the newest deceitful misrepresentation that comes down the line uh, with the title of Christian on it. You know, Christian way to wealth. You know how the Christian way to wealth is? The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Wealthy in love. Wealthy in the sight of God with a a wealth of grace and a wealth of mercy and a wealth of forgiveness and a a wealth of care and and loving others. Things have been turned upside down with people who claim Christian things that are not warranted in Scripture. And we need to be wise against it. In verses 16 through 18, Mark gives the backstory about King Herod's troubled conscience from the faithful witness of John the baptizer as a prophet of the Lord condemning the king's adultery with Herodias, his half-brother Philip's wife. This this was known, commonly known. It's even in secular history that it's known. Look at verses 16 through 18. But when Herod heard, he said, This is John whom I beheaded. 
He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For he had married her because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So there's the backstory. The true word of God witnessed by the one Jesus said was the greatest Old Testament prophet did not neutralize persecution for righteousness sake. You see, King Herod was in soul prison. His soul was all bound up. His conscience was guilty because he had falsely imprisoned John the baptizer as a prophet of God and was complicit in his murder. We talk of John being martyred. He was because he witnessed for the faith of Christ to his death. But he was wrongly and illegally murdered. Herod was guilty of blood. So was Herodias and her daughter. But you see, even though John was the greatest of the old covenant prophets because he had the privilege of witnessing to seeing and proclaiming Christ had come. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That did not neutralize the hatefulness of sin. That did not neutralize the persecution that John suffered. And that did not end his being martyred for the testimony of Jesus. See, the law word of God has conscience-binding power over the human soul demonstrated as true and greater than the commandments of men. Now, Herod finagled away to put away his first wife and to take his half-brother's wife to consolidate power. It's interesting because his father had many wives. That's why there were so many Herods running around. But somehow he had to try and um, work around either in conscience or his representing the Jewish nation, the law of Moses, the moral law of God, in order to have Herodias as his wife. But it was illegal. It was wrong. It was morally wrong. And John the baptizer was witness to that. He was a prophet of God. He was faithful to God. He witnessed to the law word of God as conscience binding even over the commandments of men. And we are bound to God first. We must obey God first. But sinful guilt often darkens a person's mind as it did with Herod and Herodias here. And it even brings in fears, and those fears are often driving violence. We see it all around us, don't we? People who are so guilty before God, they know they're guilty before God. And what do they do? More and more, they try to war against and fight against that. They often go darker and darker in their mind. Their fears overcome them, and those fears often manifest themselves in the most unspeakable violence. It's all around us in the world. And in verses 19 through 29, we have the sad story of King Herod, Herodias, and her daughter, all who were complicit in the martyrdom and the murder of John the Baptizer. Uh, I think it gives us sanctified insight about false beliefs working out in people's lives. 
So I, I want to read uh, these verses. Uh, I know they're a little bit lengthy here, but verses 19 through 29. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, that is John the Baptist, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man. And he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said uh, to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked him, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet because of the oath and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When, this, when his disciples heard it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Well, that's a disturbing story, isn't it? What do you think John told King Herod? It says that, that although Herod laid hold of him and put him in prison, he would bring him up and he, he liked to talk to him. He liked to hear what he had to say. Even though John the Baptist said, like Nathan the prophet to King David of old, you are guilty, you are the man. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. But Herod would bring John back. And I just had this interesting thought. I wonder what John the baptizer said to King Herod. I can tell you what he said. Because I know what John the Baptist said throughout Scripture. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. There is one that comes after me that's preferred before me. I am not worthy to stoop down and even unlatch his sandal. You want to know what John the Baptist said to Herod? He said, Jesus is the Messiah. This is the Christ. He is the prophet, the priest and king. He's the prophet greater than Moses. He is the prophet that tells us the way of God, the word of God incarnate. He is the priest greater than the high priests, even of Aaron of old. And he is the king greater than King David and greater than King Herod. Isn't it puzzling that Herod heard what John had to say gladly and wanted to hear more of what he had to say? I think this goes back to the opening of the chapter when Herod wanted to find out more about Jesus. Not because he believed in him. As a matter of fact, later when, when Jesus is brought, Herod wants him to do some magic tricks. I heard about you. Pull a rabbit out of your hat. But no, John told him about Jesus the Messiah. Herod didn't hear it. Because he didn't have faith. Oh, he believed some things. All kind of strange things. People believe all kind of things. Herod believed that John the Baptist came back from the dead. But he wouldn't believe the truth. And we're, we're faced in this world, this fallen world, people who will not believe the truth. So what must we do? Change the truth? No! We must say it all the more intently and consistently. Over and over and over and over again. Well, I believe that's what John said to Herod. 
Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. But like his father before him, no fear of God and the proclamation of his word changed or restrained the sinful heart of Herod. You also know from this story that Herodias, his unlawful wife, fed a murderous resentment resulting in the plot causing the guilt and murder to be on the souls of others. Did you, did you pick up on that? That this festering hatred that Herodias had for John and his witness of righteousness and the law of God drove her not only to be blood guilty herself, but to be, have others complicit in her blood guiltiness. That's dark. King Herod's guilt was even compounded by his knowledge that John was a just and holy man of God. Uh, did, you, did you hear that? That Herod wanted to hear John. Herod acknowledged that John was a holy and just man. He was a prophet of God. Herod knew this. But externally, it wasn't enough to change his heart. And then what about Herodias' daughter? Uh, history tells us through Josephus that her name was Salome. Here we're just told that it was her daughter. She was manipulated by her own mother into blood guiltiness in an ironic twist of her sensual manipulation of a weak and foolish king whose sinful pride and false oath also brought blood guiltiness upon himself. Uh, don't, Don't have any admiration for Herod. And I want to be careful not to read into Scripture, but you know, there's a lot of speculation and there's even been, um, I think Oscar Wilde or somebody wrote a play about Salome and all of this salacious you know, kind of suggestions that are here. We're not told anything other than it was on Herod's birthday. Some think it was some other kind of festival. I do think it was his birthday that he, he had the leaders, he had the hobnobbers from uh, Jerusalem, or not from Jerusalem, but from the location here to come. And that this daughter of Herodias danced in whatever manner we don't know, but it pleased the king, it pleased his guest, and you know whether he was satiated with drink and food or whatever the case may be, as a foolish man, he offered in a gesture something that was not realistic. He was not a king. He had no kingdom to give. And so it was not a literal uh, kind of thing that he was promising her. He was wanting to say, I want to honor you. I, you've pleased me and my guest. I want to do something special for you. And so he says, ask anything you want, even up to half my kingdom. And he swore that he would give her whatever she wanted. Foolish, foolish, foolish. You can't promise things that aren't yours. And when you promise them, you have no power to deliver. So what do you do? You repent before God and say, I was foolish. But Herod didn't repent. What did Herod do? Herod was complicit in blood guiltiness. Herod, Herodias, and her daughter. Blood on their hands, blood on their souls. The blood of a just and righteous man, a prophet of God. And God used that. God is active in history. God was not absent. When the executioner went down to the prison and told John to get down on his knees and raise the sword, I can tell you that John departed this life in the power and the presence of God. He was not abandoned. God didn't forsake him. 
He witnessed with his own blood to the death that Jesus is the Messiah. So false beliefs are very often driven by religious superstitions and unbiblical interpretive traditions. We can't be silent about that. We need to point it out. We need to be warned. And this in the face of the verifiable prophetic word of God. Did you, did you catch up on that? That John, as a prophet, witnessed to the prophetic word of God? It is not lawful for you to have your brother-in-law's or your, your half-brother's wife. Did you hear that Herod heard John gladly as John prophesied and told who Jesus is? No, the, the, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the coming one. He is the Christ. And so the prophetic word of God validates and tells us what is true. And the word of God has conscience binding power. We still preach the moral law of God. The moral law of God cannot save you. The moral law of God points you to Christ that you need to be saved. And so, like John of old, I'm not going to stop preaching the moral law of God. I'm going to preach the whole counsel of the word of God. But I'm going to preach that by pointing to Jesus as the Savior. Now, I believe that's what John the baptizer did. I believe he witnessed to the moral law of God and to Herod's guilt, but I believe he also witnessed to Jesus as the Christ. But in this story, and as sometimes often happens with us, the law of God hardens sinful hearts. Even sometimes by the very means of the gospel that God uses to soften the hearts of others. You see, that's where we lay ourselves out to God. God who is all gracious and loving and kind and just and holy. All the attributes of God in perfection. I don't tell God who to save. I beg Him that He would make His word powerful to the reaching of the soul's whom he will save. I cannot save anybody. I can't save myself. But I can witness to Jesus as the Savior. And why do I need a Savior? Because God is holy. And I can't save myself. I'm guilty. But my guilt has been covered. It's been covered by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so the very means that God uses in the witness sometimes hardens the hearts of some, but it softens and brings salvation to the hearts of others. So what do we do? Well, as we've said, the gospel conflict in this sinful world is against unbelief, disbelief, false beliefs, and weak beliefs. But saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the victory that overcomes the world. So we continue to preach the gospel in season and out of season, knowing that God will save sinners. Our concluding hymn this morning is hymn.